How has the last 12 months been for you? This week, we take a look back at the events that have shaped 2013 in Afghanistan, in Africa, and at home in the UK. We'll also assess the state of Britain's three services after another year of cuts for the armed forces. And we look to the future and what might be in store in 2014. Hello and welcome to the final sit rep for 2013 and what a year. Joining me round the festive table to reflect on the highs and lows of the last 12 months and to look towards the future, we have Major General Julian Thompson. Hello, Professor Eric Grove and from, from Liverpool Hope University. And as always, BFBS's very own defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello to all of you. Um, this week, the Prime Minister has paid a pre-Christmas visit to British troops in Afghanistan. It's become something of a tradition for David Cameron to arrive unannounced in Camp Bastion at this time of year and this is his fourth Christmas visit but it may be his last with all combat troops due to leave over the next 12 months. BFBS reporter James Hurst travelled with the Prime Minister. David Cameron may come here to meet the troops but he also brings a party of journalists with him trying to show them that things are going to plan. In a huddle with newspaper reporters in Camp Bastion, away from the cameras and microphones, he was asked if, after their last Christmas in Helmand, British troops come home with mission accomplished. Yes, they do, he replied. Despite Afghanistan not being perfect, he said troops could come home with their heads held high. And this is how he finished the detailed answer. To me, the absolute driving part of the mission is the basic level of security so that it doesn't become a haven for terror. That is the mission, that was the mission, and I think we will have accomplished that mission and so our troops can be very proud of what they've done. Those words were then dissected on TV and in newspapers. Some compared it to George Bush's notorious mission accomplished declaration in Iraq, but that was months in, not a decade later. And there is still an absolutely crucial test ahead for Afghan forces. A presidential election in April, expected to be a target for a big insurgent push and a potential point of destabilisation. So, I put the mission accomplished question to the Prime Minister in a slightly different way. Can you imagine any circumstance in which this time next year all British combat troops have not left because something's had to change? Uh, we've been very clear that after the end of 2014 there won't be... British troops in a combat role and there won't be anything like the numbers there are now. That is what I said in 2010 and we are on that track and we are sticking to that track. What we've done in that time is train up a hugely capable Afghan National Army and Police Force, now numbering almost 350,000, I think more than capable, of providing the basic level of security this country needs. I obviously want a successful Afghan election. It should be another uh, mark along the route towards success for this country uh, and we'll do everything we can to help. What is behind that confidence? I asked Britain's most senior officer here, Lieutenant General John Lorimer, what progress he'd been able to show the Prime Minister since his last visit six months ago. One of the most important things we've shown him is uh, he, he's met uh, a number of Afghan commanders. And of course, since uh, June the 18th this year, uh, the Afghan National Security Forces have been in the lead. And he's had a good conversation with General Malouk, who's a corps commander, and Brigadier General Nassim, who's the brigade commander in Helmand, um, about operations they've been conducting over the, uh, the last six months. So did Mr Cameron make an important and controversial declaration on this visit? He has long been clear the job in Afghanistan is about protecting Britain's national security. That is perhaps a luxury of being Prime Minister. 
The FBS reporter, James Hurst there. Christopher, is it mission accomplished? Um, there's not one mission, is there? I mean, they've been in there over, over ten years. And so you start off on any campaign with a mission, and that changes as you go along, and that's exactly what's happened. Interesting when uh, General he was Lawrence... Saying, he was saying mission accomplished in so much as al-Qaeda cannot use Afghanistan as a launch pad for attacks that threaten countries like the UK. Now, that was what he was saying, isn't of it? Of course it can. Once the security is in the hands of the uh, Afghan army, they have to be the guarantor of peace. Uh, at the moment, it's unlikely... But it's interesting when General, Lor General Lorimer was saying, OK, well, uh, he's been impressed by the Afghan commanders, the generals. Wait until the day that he's impressed by the middle management, company commanders and senior NCOs. Then you know that you've got the sort of Afghan uh, security forces that might stand a chance against a reinsurgent Taliban. Julian Thompson, mission accomplished? Well, I, I pick up what Christopher said, that one of the stated aims was to keep the streets of Britain safer. Ironically, of course, actually very few, if any, terrorist attacks were planned in Afghanistan. Uh, we'll have to see. And if there is an attack in the streets of Britain... I suppose he would say, then, though, that that's proof that it has worked in Afghanistan, well, wouldn't he, he? the proof is, if we don't have an attack in this country, which is seen to have been mounted from Afghanistan, he can't tell whether this is going to happen or not. The, camp the campaign has worked extremely well for the army. The army protected itself inside its Afghan blanket during the Strategic Defence and Security Review. The army was not cut, and that was the primary purpose behind the army's deployment anyway, so therefore it has worked extremely well for the army. Secondly, it hasn't worked so well, because the army wanted to go to Afghanistan to demonstrate to our American eyes that we could actually do counterinsurgency properly after our miserable failure in Basra. And eventually the Americans had to take our chestnuts out of the fire in Helmand, so therefore the British army is not exactly covered itself in glory. So therefore I would say in terms of the narrow interest of the British Army, which is what the deployment was all about in the first place, it has not worked. Eric Graves, stay with us. Gentlemen, stay with us. Uh, staying in Afghanistan, the NATO Secretary General has been telling SITREP he's confident there will be a security agreement to allow the presence of NATO troops non-combat post-2014. In an interview at the Alliance's Brussels headquarters, Agnes Rasmussen told me that although the Afghan President has yet to sign, that won't affect plans for an orderly withdrawal of combat troops. First of all, let me stress that uh, the signature uh, on uh, the security agreement uh, won't have any impact uh, on um, the completion of uh, the ISAF combat mission. That will be completed by the end of 2014, uh, just as planned. The security agreement uh, will be necessary for our continued presence uh, after uh, 2014. First of all, the bilateral security agreement uh, between the United States and Afghanistan, and that will be followed uh, by a NATO status of forces agreement. And that legal framework is a prerequisite uh, for our continual presence after 2014. And that's why it is a matter of urgency to get the signature. How confident are you that you will get that signature? Well, I think uh, we will get that signature because uh, the Afghans know uh, that a signature is a prerequisite uh, for our continued presence um, uh, in Afghanistan. And um, if we are not able to deploy a training mission after 2014, other things are put at risk as well, including 
international financing uh, of the Afghan uh, security forces. And that would, at the end of the day, also put security at risk uh, in Afghanistan. So a lot is at stake, and I think the Afghans know that. If we could turn now to Russia. Russia is building up its military presence in the Arctic. It's also putting more pressure on Ukraine. What are the relationships, what is the relationship like between NATO and Russia, given these developments? Well, I will describe uh, our relationship as a mixed picture. Uh, we have our disputes, we have our differences, but on the other hand, we have also seen progress uh, when it comes to practical cooperation. For instance, um, on Afghanistan, we have an excellent cooperation. Uh, we have also developed a strong uh, cooperation on counter-narcotics, counter-terrorism, counter-piracy. These are areas of practical cooperation where we have seen significant progress during recent years. But at the same time, we have uh, our disputes, for instance, on missile defense. Uh, we have decided to build a NATO missile defense. We have invited Russia to cooperate, but so far we haven't uh, received uh, a positive uh, response uh, from the Russian side. And what has NATO said to Russia, or has it said anything to Russia, about its intentions to build up its military presence in the Arctic? Well, um, it's our clear uh, position uh, that we don't want and we don't need a militarization uh, of uh, the Arctic uh, region. Uh, we do hope uh, that uh, nations uh, in the Arctic region uh, will be able to... Uh, to solve uh, security challenges in that region in a peaceful uh, manner, for instance, uh, within the Arctic Council. Um, but, of course, uh, we also have to add uh, that a number of NATO allies uh, have a territory uh, in the Arctic uh, region, and obviously they would expect um, uh, NATO collective defense and NATO solidarity to also cover uh, NATO territory uh, in uh, the Arctic region. And in terms of uh, NATO's public image, Afghanistan has been a very clear and public demonstration of NATO at work. That's all going to end in terms of the combat mission and the high profile of that next year. How important is it that the public sees what NATO does and understands what NATO does? It is absolutely crucial uh, that NATO uh, is visible and that uh, the public understands uh, what is the purpose of um, uh, NATO. After the completion uh, of our combat mission uh, in Afghanistan, we will enter a new era, uh, so, to, so to speak. And the essence of that is to um, stay prepared uh, to take action, if needed, uh, in, in the future. And the way to stay prepared is that we further develop the ability to work and operate together. All that we learned uh, in, in Afghanistan, 28 NATO allies plus 22 partners learned how to work and operate together in Afghanistan. And we want to uh, maintain and further develop that ability so that we stay prepared to take action in the future if NATO is called upon. That was the NATO Secretary General Anyas for Rasmussen. Eric Grove, what do you make of his comments there about Russia? About Russia, it's very important. 
I think actually we might be living in cloud cuckoo land. Russia is potentially a great problem indeed. Putin is a great nationalist. There are potential problems with Russian minorities in Estonia and in Latvia. There are problems around the periphery of Russia. Russia is a problem and we have to face that. He uh, doesn't n- sound like he was aware, doesn't yes, he? Yes, he, he is. Aware. And NATO is very important. It's not just in the Arctic, but the Arctic's important too. Russia is being very imperialistic about the Arctic. And there are countries like Norway and Canada and so on who have interests in the Arctic. So NATO is crucially important. And although I'm not saying there's going to be another Cold War, I am saying that the NATO alliance is very important. After all, we have to treat an an attack on one of the Baltic states as an attack on ourselves. And that is something we need to think about. In that light, Julian Thompson, do you think the training of the Royal Marines in the Arctic could become more important? Well, the Royal Marines have been training in the Arctic since the end of the 60s. This was, of course, in order to be able to defend Norway in the event of a Soviet attack on North Norway. And this training is, is, is very important still for the reasons that Eric has just covered. It's also important because if you can fight in the Arctic, you can probably fight almost anywhere else in the world because the training is so tough. Mm. Uh, Christopher, NATO 2014, what's it got ahead? Well, the first thing it's got ahead is it'll pat itself on the back next September. Uh, at the NATO summit and say, didn't we do well in Afghanistan? And this will be a huge illusion in that sense. The importance of NATO, it's not in its present form. Uh, There will be a bigger debate, and I think a a continuing debate, but it will come to something this time, and that is on Eurodefence. And NATO looks far more like becoming NATO, i.e. Europe defence, minus Canada and America, and I think we're going to see not just a coalition of willing, uh, of willing forces, but we're going to see a new form of defence. And don't forget, look is at this the other... Is this a smart defence that's been talked about no, before? No, 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 it, it no. Is, it is fundamental defence and defence uh, defense ambitions. For example, how far do you go? At one time, NATO forces thought, thought just for Europe. Now the telescope is extended a little further and they can go anywhere in the globe. Just think of one thing. We were talking about Russia before. If you were Putin that gave up or it was taken away, it broke up the Warsaw Pact. And what you see is the whole of Western Europe, the important countries of Western Europe, still in a political and military formation and an organisation, you'd be a bit twitchy. And that's what we're seeing now. Gentlemen, stay with us. Still to come, we look ahead to 2014, the year when Britain will commemorate 100 years since the start of the Great War. Let's look now at some of the other news stories of 2013 from around the world. Much of our time on this programme over the last year was spent discussing Syria. But on the face of it, not much has changed, or has it, Christopher? Well, the one thing that has changed is they've got about 11,000 people not from Syria fighting in Syria. Not just as rebels, but people also fighting on the Syrian side. The other thing... Several which, hundred Britons as well. Three hundred and se- The last count by the, uh, by the by security forces, which was about four days ago, 366 mm. are fighting there. And the great fear of MI5, etc., the security people, is that some of the angst, some of the techniques they've learned will be brought back to the United Kingdom. Most important thing, though, is that we got confused about uh, about the British party and the American party in Syria. Uh, a, we shouldn't have been in the way we went. We're, we're backing the wrong people. The general that's commanding the, the mm. rebels hasn't, doesn't actually command anything. And we got screwed up about chemical weapons when we f- seem to have forgotten that the majority of people killed were killed by conventional weapons. Julian, um, weapons, have they got 
they have got into the wrong hands of the wrong people. Do you think it was a mistake to send those weapons? I think in? it was a great mistake to send them for, for the reason that Christopher has, has underlined. The number of foreign fighters that are there, some of whom undoubtedly will come back here and undoubtedly, I have to say, will try, if they're not stopped, and I hope they are, to mount sort of attacks that, that have been mounted in places like Iraq, bomb attacks, or car bombs, attacks on individuals. So as what they you're saying is almost like a training ground. Well, it's not it's being used as it is a training such. Ground. It is used as a training ground. And I think it's highly dangerous, and I think that we should be thinking quite seriously about what we do about these young men, and they're all mostly young men, and whether we say, well, sorry, if you've gone there, you can't come back. Eric, um, many different factions fighting in Syria. Do we know what they are and who's fighting who? I think we have a pretty good idea. I mean, on the government side, there are the committed sort of... Ba'athists who support the government, there are the Christians, there are the Alawites, the people who are fighting against the Sunni Muslims, there are the Shias. On the other side, it's basically a Sunni Muslim revolt. Uh, it's basically religious, like sadly most things in the Middle East are. And therefore, we have to find some solution, which may be the partition of Syria with an Alawite Christian state in the west and a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a Sunni state somewhere in the east and the Kurds somewhere to the east of that. The point, the point being, Eric, is simple, isn't it? The rebels have been beaten by the other rebels. We now have, yes. the, we now have the Islamic rebels... The Islamists really are in charge, yes, exactly. In, ...in charge. We have backed them to bring down Assad. Yes. When and if they do there is going to be the most, most almighty bloodbath... Correct. ...for for control. Absolutely. And we're backing mm. that. That is the danger... It's very dangerous face. indeed, and I agree. Yes. Mm. Let's move briefly to Iran. Um, Christopher, just remind us where we stand about possible deal on nuclear weapons. Well, the deal is this. It's something like this anyway. Within the next six months, uh, it is hoped that the, uh, the Iranians will have agreed to uh, not to enrich uranium uh, above, say, 5%, which is, you know, peanut stuff. Uh, they haven't entirely done that, but that's what they're rather hoping to do. Nor will they go ahead with one of the uh, particularly important uh, uh, reactors, uh, and that will curb the idea that you can have uh, uh, nuclear weapons. The most important thing is this. The supreme leader, the supreme Ay Ayatollah, is still in charge. The new uh, new president is not in charge. And just a few weeks ago, the Revolutionary Army or the, uh, the, or the council of that, uh, of that army were warning the politicians, do not give too much to, uh, to Western ideas. In the meantime, down the road is Mr Netanyahu in Israel, who is still itching to say, listen, we've got to do something practical, like bomb hell out of the at least the surface of these... To remain to be the only nuclear power in the Middle East, one tends to forget yes, that Israel but is. the important thing about this, he is now on his own, because there's no, now no question that the Americans would join in on that. And that's, that's going true, to be agree, the biggest test yeah. in the whole of the Middle East. Who Let, backs so, Iran and who backs Israel? Let's just step briefly look at Egypt, though, because that has an interesting... With the overthrow of President Morsi, interesting situation there, Julian Thomas. Well, it is, uh, but in fact, of course, the, the government who overthrew Morsi, in my opinion, rather overplayed their hand, for example, in bringing those young girls to be tried for demonstrating. Now, that is exactly the sort of thing that the people who backed 
that the, the, the overthrow of Morsi hoped would, would go away. They do not want to see this sort of extremist poli- politics. And the, the, the army-led government of Egypt have fallen into the trap of doing exactly what the, the, the majority of Egyptians hoped they wouldn't do. And, and I don't view what they've done with an, any sort of uh, uh, support at all. I think that it's a good thing that, that Morsi is not in charge because he's an extreme Islamist, but I don't want to see the army repeat the mistakes that they've made over the last few do, weeks. Do you think, Chris, we're going to see um, many more news stories coming out of Egypt in the next year? Not just in Egypt, but the whole of the Middle East, but on this idea of an iPhone re- re- revolution. Um, <coughs> Morsi got elected, don't forget. He actually got elected. They held in... Re- yeah, uh, but it was a strange election. Strange. Well, it doesn't matter whether it's a strange election. He got elected. We were sort of going around saying, we've got to have democracy. Remember, chaps, democracy. We get democracy mm. and the wrong guy gets in. Okay. I think the place to and watch... the mess of it. Wait a minute. I think the place to watch is the Gulf. Mm. Because everybody is looking at what's happened in Tunis, yeah. in, 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 in Libya... And in Egypt, and they're saying this could happen in the Gulf. Okay, People let, like let's, Bahrain let's, are really getting twitched. Let's also it. just talk about Africa, though, because in the past year, Islamist groups have stepped up their activities in several African countries. In Somalia, African Union troops have been fighting Al Shabaab, which carried out the attack on a Kenyan shopping centre. French troops spearheaded the response to insurgents in Mali. Uh, General Sir David Richards has had plenty to say about all this, saying beware of ignoring Al Qaeda and its affiliates in Africa. Julian, do you agree with him? I agree with him totally. And the trouble is that, of course, by interfering, which we did in Libya, we played exactly into their hands. We supplied them with weapons, and, and the, the terrorists or, or guerrillas who attacked the, arm, the, the gas facility in Algeria came from Libya equipped with weapons that we gave them. And this is, again, another example of the foolishness of getting involved in these internal struggles. Well, perhaps the most shocking story of 2013 was the attack on Fusilier Lee Rigby. The soldier was killed outside his barracks in Woolwich. Let's talk about Islamist extremism. Has it been on the rise in Britain in 2013? Eric Grove. Well, I'm afraid that what we've been doing in the Arab world and the Muslim world has actually encouraged radicals in the Muslim community in Britain to radicalise themselves. In fact, well, you think interventions I think the interventions have, have, have actually been rather counterproductive. And when you look at the people who murdered Rigby, and they say they were, they were fighters in a great cause. Well, of course they weren't, because they weren't part of any kind of organised armed force. Yeah, but, this whole idea of the lone wolf idea. Yeah, I mean, no, but, 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 but you ha- we seem to have seen a radicalised radical groups among the Muslim community in Britain, uh, a minority of course, but still significant, who have decided that they're going to counter-attack. And therefore I'm not sure that our interventionist policy in the Muslim world has actually been very effective. In fact, it's been counterproductive. This this year, the intelligence gathering methods used to counter the threat have been criticised. Edward Snowden's revelations in The Guardian have led to questions over snooping on emails and phone calls. Britain's security chiefs had to even appear before a committee of MPs and answer questions about their work. Did you ever think that would happen, Christopher? Well, I did, actually. Did you? Uh, I, Why? Yeah, I did. Um, because they had it coming to them, did they? No, they didn't have it, com- they hadn't it coming to them. Um, but it was thought that um, with the opening up of the, of the personalities within all three, GCHQ, MI6 and MI5, this was inevitable because now, I mean, if you go back five years, you wouldn't have been allowed to talk or you wouldn't even have known, perhaps, the names of the people. We now know uh, people, you know, we now know... Uh, 
the, the names of all the people there. But it's, fant- it's interesting. The, the three of them did appear before the Intelligence Committee and some of the uh, information that they gave out and some of the discussion went into camera, but the rest of it was in the open. However, the Home Affairs Committee uh, just a couple of... Uh, or a week ago said, we want... Head of or Director General MI5 back before us, Home Secretary Theresa May says, No way, sunshine, you're not having him. Let's now look at the state of Britain's armed forces at the end of 2013. All the Navy men are here today, so let's start with the Royal Navy. Eric, I'm not going to ask you about the Army after what you said about Afghanistan there. Uh, what shape is the Navy in? Well, things are looking a bit better. I know First Sea Lord Admiral Zimbellis is very optimistic. Now, if all goes well, the Navy is going to get over 60% of the procurement programme because we're going to complete both aircraft carriers. We've got the Type 26 frigate programme, the Global Combat Ship. Uh, we're going to have a new class of uh, smaller combatant. The mine countermeasures vessels are going to be re-engined. So, in fact, although the Navy is going to come down, including the Royal Marines, to less than 30,000, the Royal Navy looks as it should do in in an era when we don't know who we're going to fight when and where, and the sea is the best way of deploying military force, is going to perhaps counter-attack somewhat, given the fact it's suffered so much in in the... in recent defence reviews. Julian, what about the army? Because there's quite a job on still to get all those reservists, isn't there? Well, what, what, the, what the army are relying on, or what the government's relying on, is, is a, a large increase in reservists. Now, the problem with that is how seriously they take reservists. In America, if you don't turn up for your reserve training, you're on a charge, and then you could can be charged with desertion, and you then could be charged with a dishonourable discharge, which means it's difficult to get a job. I very much doubt if the government in this country will introduce legislation like that. But if they are to take the reserves seriously, then they have to, because otherwise they will find that they won't have enough reservists when they're required. And Christopher, the RAF? RAF needs more aircraft if you're looking up to, uh, to, let's say, 2025, coming up to 2030. And it will probably get a limit amount of what it's asking for at the moment. Um, Also, you've got to remember its deployment has been shifted and Afghanistan is a perfect example, although quite a lot of the deployment in Afghanistan was naval aircraft. The other thing to consider, and that is that um, they're branching out into other operations, such as drone operations, which which they're flying from, 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 from Wellington. But if anybody thinks that we don't need an RAF, um, I know Eric sort of thinks this, for example. You've got to have people who are thinking RAF. Now, I'll tell you when RAF... Put in your calendar now. Um, 2018. And, uh, and one, of most, one of the most famous men ever in the Royal Air Force, the founder of the Royal Air Force, Trenchard. I haven't got uh, that diary yet. <laughs> you well, should have the diary. You should have it imprinted on your forehead. Because Trenchard 100, 100 years of the RAF, yes. is going to be such a boost for the RAF and it was going to be a re- remarkable thing. The RAF is planning to do what the Navy failed to do with the 200th anniversary of the death of Nelson. OK, well, let's have a look ahead to the future because um, 2014 is going to be a big year. Looking at the wall planner, we already know about the end of combat operations in Afghanistan. There's a Scottish referendum on independence and, of course, there's those centenary commemorations of World War One. Who wants to kick off with their thoughts for 2014? Eric? Yes, I would. I think the Scottish referendum could be of great significance. I get the impression that England's a bit in denial about it. 
that we English are sort of sort of, uh, 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 sort of reconciling ourselves that, oh, well, you know, we can see, look at the opinion polls, nobody's going to vote in favour of independence. They might. And if that happens, all bets are off in a whole range of issues. What's the impact of this on ballistic missile replacement, given the fact the Scots don't want uh, us to maintain, as English, to maintain nuclear capability in Fuslane? What does this do in various other areas? And I think that that could be very, very important indeed. Julian? Um, I think we might see a conflict in an area we never believed would happen. Uh, and I would uh, put my money on somewhere around the South China Sea. Oh, I would too, actually. Christopher? Uh, <coughs> South China Sea, yep. Um, you're going to find that Japanese are about to, to, to boost their whole military operations and their philosophy, and they're going to go into areas which they've never gone into since the Second World War. They're going to come out of this sort of pacifist role, and they're going to be coming into an offensive role, including amphibious operations, uh, new aircraft, and long-range uh, long deployments. They now have three aircraft carriers with another one coming yeah, along. Yeah, but let me, let me just give you these ones to watch for. Watch for the name Ursula uh, von der Leyen. Ursula von der Leyen is, in fact, a Belgian who is this week become a defence secretary uh, in Germany. She is going to... She's got all the problems and more than the British Defence uh, Ministry has uh, about everything, including aircraft, uh, etc. But she is going to revolutionise the way Germany, uh, one of the most important uh, 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 members uh, of NATO, how it operates. She's also going to be the next German Chancellor. The other people, the odd people to watch out for, are uh, Mexicans. The Mexican economy is going to grow in the next two, three years faster right. than the Indian economy. Um, the Americans are going to start thinking all about right. it. And if you want a war, just think Africa. And that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all our guests, Major General Julian Thompson, Professor Eric Grove, and you, Christopher, of course. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website. SITREP is back on Thursday, January the 9th. But until then, from me, Kate Chabot, and the rest of the team, have a Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Sport, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.